Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Around the world. Around the clock. Endurance racing direct to you. RadioLeMans.com. Hello everybody, this is John Hindorf and another RadioLamont.com special looks back over an extraordinary 2015 of motorsport and surely there could be nothing more entertaining and exciting than the FIA World Endurance Championship. Uh, we did have two of the WAC races nominated for Race of the Year in our I Respect Man of the Year programme. You voted the Silverstone Six Hours as your Race of the Year. And what a way that was to start the championship. A championship that kept up that very high level of racing excellence right throughout the whole season. To discuss the whole year with me is the editor of DailySportsCar.com, Graham Goodwin, who has, for all the six-hour races, been with me in the TV box and joined us at Le Mans as well. Graham, hello there. Uh, good evening, John. Good evening, evening, everybody. And what a great year it's been. I've still got a big, silly smile on my face from, from you know, I think what's been a banner year for sports car racing, and I'm delighted to be able to say it. it we have had a situation in the last few years um, with the WEC going from strength to strength. Um, easy to forget, of course, that the World Championship was born at a time when uh, one of the major manufacturers was just pulling out of doing uh, the endurance racing scene, that being Peugeot. But Silverstone, Spa, 24 Hours of Le Mans, all looks uh, pretty standard at the start of the season. The Nürburgring came in this year to replace a later race in the year at Sao Paulo. Back to quarter, Circuit of the Americas, Fuji, Shanghai and Bahrain. It is a calendar that... And we could discuss this long and hard, just about which races should be in, whether they're in the right order, what else could possibly should be in there. But that does have a certain degree of familiarity about it, which helps to grow the championship. What, what I think, what's that phrase you use? Is it calendar equity? Date John? equity, yeah, absolutely. Date equity, and it's absolutely right, because what we've seen throughout uh, the, the last two or three years is those events have been building. There's some issues, I think, to be dealt with with a couple of them. Uh, Cota certainly, um, you know, I think is still giving cause for concern in terms of the, the level of audience we're seeing turn up to the turnstiles, but each yes. of them has got something to offer. Shanghai, where we had a lot of cynicism in the very early years of the championship, uh, you and I have seen physical evidence of being more and more people coming through the gates. And there. deals being done, Graham. Business being done Absolutely there as well. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, you know, let's not forget that's why the manufacturers are in this championship and perhaps not in some others. But through all of it, John, um, there's been one major story. And that's been the racing. The racing's been astonishing. I mean, but you and I, I remember on air had that conversation at the end of Interlagos 2014 um, that that was probably the best six-hour race we'd ever seen. Mm. And by the time we got to the end of the Spa Six Hours, it was the third best. And, you know, it's it, it was an astonishing start to the season. We 
have for the last couple of seasons been able to say that right throughout the field we've had good racing. Um, it had been the case in any mixed category racing, in any multi-class racing, there will always be at one stage uh, one class that is the go-to class uh, to find some racing at the head of the field. That used to be GTs. Now, literally... In the 2015 season, I, I, I really feel for Olivier and the guys in the TV truck for WEC because, frankly, at any given time, there was probably at least two or three battles going on for major positions at the sharp end of any one of the four-stroke five categories. Absolutely right, and uh, you know, and it, it, you're completely right, John. You know what we get is the guys concentrating on GTE Pro. You know, you and I be watching both the TV feed and the timing screens, and you know, uh, and it was it, it was a, a completely interactive experience. You know, we're calling things to them; they're calling things to us. Uh, there were battles for very many of those races in at least two and often more mm. classes at various points during the race. And, and one, one of the things that was a huge pleasure to me was that we saw those each of those four championships, five championships, if you include LMP1 Privateer, which di- is probably the one class that didn't have a banner year this year. Good point. Um, but, you know, that what we saw there was that there was phasing to them. We saw Audi in their pomp at the start of the year. Uh, you know, we saw in GTE Pro, uh, the factory teams almost take it in turns to actually have a good weekend or a bad weekend. And the same in GTM, mm. LMP2, great racing, massive controversy in the middle to late part of the season. Uh, but, you know, there's so many stories. I mean, you know, trying to write a, an annual review for this one. Let's just reflect that there were 11 different championships uh, that... Um, uh, that that were being battled for, um, of which there were world championships, uh, FIA World Endurance Drivers Championship, uh, FIA World Endurance Manufacturers Championship, mm-hmm. um, and then we had the Endurance Cups, a, sli- yep. a slightly level further down. That was the GT Drivers FIA World Endurance Cup. And sh- I should add, by the way, John, that despite, I think, requests from the manufacturers, that will continue into 2016. Uh, okay. So there will not be a world championship for the GT Drivers, which I think is a shame. I can understand, you know, taking things easy, but uh, I think that's a shame. I think it's certainly a battle that's deserving of that plaudit for the drivers and the GT manufacturers is only a cup as well then you have a whole slew of endurance trophies for private teams LMP2 GTM uh, LMP1 teams LMP2 teams GTE Pro teams and GTE uh, AM teams as well so as I said 11 different championships to look at broadly speaking split up of course uh, into the categories that we uh, that we have been watching Um, Tradition sort of dictates that we start with uh, GTE Arm or GT Arm, um, which is as good a place as any to start. The, in some ways, you know, the entry level to the championship, but pr- provided top class racing again, Graham, this year, and you know, the changes to qualifying with the the non pro driver or the the silver and bronze, let's call them drivers. Um, having to take part in qualifying, for me, has transformed this particular championship and this particular category. 
It did, because the guys have got to raise their game. And oddly enough, John, when we talked about the start, top of the show about the uh, the championship working in, its, in phases, this was the one that was at the top of my mind. Why? Because what we saw at the start of the year with Paul Delalana, Pedro Lamy and Matthias Lauder, and that's uh, ending up, uh, ended up to be a, a, a cracking trio, yes. um, they bossed it right up until that moment when you and I looked out of the windows of the Ready Le Mans oh. uh, .com commentary booth across the Fort Chicane in the final hour at Le Mans when they were absolutely running away with the race and a mistake from Paul Delalana um, basically wrote off that car on the Fort Chicane. And from there on in until the very late part of the season, they could do no right. Mm. Uh, so having looked like they were going to run away with the championship, it all changed at that point. Then what we got was the middle part of the championship with Le Mans double point scoring and the following two races where the SMP racing team came forward and were just simply unbeatable. And then towards the end of the uh, the championship, we saw them repeatedly drop the baton yeah. uh, with, you know, OK, punctures, a bit of a wrong pick call as well came into that. But they, they could have nailed the championship as early as Fuji, but it took them until Bahrain to do it. And what that gave the opportunity uh, for were, I think, two further stories. One was the Dempsey Proton Porsche, uh, great uh, display by them in the latter part of the year as Patrick Dempsey found his feet in the uh, on tracks he was more familiar with, but also so a great performance with Manu Collard and uh, Rui Aguash. And, and in particular, yeah, we look to GTM, as you quite rightly say, for, for people stepping up the ladder. And, and uh, Francois Perodo, who great. had a, a poor start to his season with, a, frankly, an awful drive at the Daytona 24 Hours, mm. um, where he made a real mess of it. But at the end of it, you'd never known that was the same guy. And it was a delight to see you on stage, John, on the beach in Bahrain. <laughs> Uh, with Francois being announced as the Gentleman Driver of the Year, and deservedly so. Completely because it so. Was them, it was them that gave the uh, SMP guys a run for their money towards the end of the season. But you have to say, coming through all of it, uh, the, S- the AF Corsa Ferrari, the uh, Aston Martin Racing crew with um, with Matthias Lauder, with Pedro Lamy, uh, with Paul Delalana, a few good moments for some of the other crews, notably that fantastic double pass, by the way, by Stewie, Stewie Hall. Hall. In the, in the wet at, at Fuji. Fuji. Uh, but, you know, you have to say that uh, Victor Scheitar, I think, has been a revelation this year. Andrea Bertolini would expect great things from Alexei uh, Basov. That is a crew that deservedly come away with the plaudits of having that title. And uh, the, the SMP racing crew and Doc Bunkle behind that effort, uh, I just hope we see him back because of a quality, quality entry. The, the uh, If we go through the teams, Labra Competition finished seventh in the Corvette, not a great year for them um, their small bit of sunlight was uh, rather controversially taken away uh, after a, uh, a pole position was taken from them in post qualifying technical inspection yes. they had the wrong piece on the car no doubt about that but it was a piece that had been presented to the scrutineer several times before by them and indeed by the team which won Le Mans uh, the uh- works team yeah, they just had absolutely zero luck all year, John. Although they had lots of luck, and all of it bad. What we, <laughs> I think we're going to see from Labra next year, there was a moment in the sun where we thought we might see Labra do what Jacques Lacan has tried to do for many years, which is to step up with a two-car effort, one of which would be in GT Pro. Sure, now that's not going to happen, but he's still working on getting two cars uh, oh, okay. for the WEC. So a couple of Corvettes. 
you can't have too many Corvettes, can you? They're just fabulous, fabulous looking and I, particularly sounding cars. I continue to be disappointed that we don't see a works Corvette in a world championship, particularly when, uh, and I love Doug Feehan and the Pratt Miller guys, and they are you know worthy of their place at Le Mans, but to just cherry pick Le Mans and not to support the world championship with... One of the few cars that is actually a global car in GT, um, in any type of racing, um, marketed around the world and has a global presence. Um, I think you'd probably say the Ferrari and the Aston and the Porsche are are very similar uh, to that. I'm continuously disappointed that WEC doesn't provide the platform uh, for Corvette racing uh, as it, as they feel it should. I understand why they want to support their national series in the States. Um, but, you know, to leave it to, to Jacques Leconte, uh, a car that was clearly competitive at, at times, and let's not forget Jacques lent that 50 car uh, to the factory whilst Jan Magnussen's was being rebuilt after the Le Mans shunt. Well, here's, here's a mouth-watering prospect. I, th- I 100% agree with you. I'd love to see a factory Corvette in the WEC. Here's a mouth-watering prospect, though. Le Mans next year, we could have five. We could have five. If Jacques manages to get uh, his act together with a two-car entry in the WEC, we know now that it looks like Pro Speed are attempting to bring a oh, GTE wow. entry to the ELMS. Um, the problem with GT Pro is that there simply isn't going to be a 2016 spec car available to Jacques Leconte, uh, by the sound of things. But of course, there's likely to be the two Corvette factory entries. So we could have five of those magnificent bellowing V8s doing the rounds. But, but let's wait and see. Maybe another year, maybe a bit of a bedding year in year. We've got clearly lots of new metal and carbon fibre, yeah. for that matter, coming forward for 2016, John. Not least, of course, that four-letter word that is Ford and the new Ford GT, but a very different look to the GT cars coming next year with, uh, you know, diffusers and spoilers uh, aplenty. Go, go, yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, but, you know, for now, I mean, GTM, that's probably the, the class of all of them for next year, that there's more questions about what strength in depth we're going to see. We are so- going to see Porsche back. We are going to see Corvette back. We are going to see Aston Martin back and Ferrari back. Um, and a few questions beyond that, a few other possibilities. I think that's where, if there's going to be surprises next year on the entry list, we believe we're going to hear about in early February. I think that that's where the, the surprises are going to be. Yes. Um Seven cars this year I thought was a decent entry. And we'll move up to sixth position um, with Aston Martin Racing. This is the 96 car. Um, few driver changes during the year, but they again, they had their, their moment in the sun, uh, for uh, particularly for Stuart Hall. Great to see uh, Stewie back in a full-time uh, drive. Abu Dhabi Proton Racing and Dempsey Proton Racing. You mentioned those guys. Pole position for the Dempsey car at Circuit of the Americas, and following that, the race victory at Fuji. Um, I don't think you can underestimate how good it is to have Patrick Dempsey in a motor racing paddock, whatever that is, and it happens to be the World Endurance Championship, um, because it just adds something else. And as we saw at Le Mans, Graham, with a podium finish at Le Mans, as well as the win at Fuji, that lad's a racer. People, Absolutely. 
Look, there's, there's two things to say about Patrick Dempsey. Number one, anybody that comes on uh, to the, the the internet heroes and start talking about he's not proper this, he's not a proper that, has clearly never spoken to him about his racing. Uh, because I have to say, I, I've just been uh, been one of those things that because our travel schedules have interspersed, that have bumped into him in airport lounges and on the planes uh, to and from the circuit, as well as in the paddock. And he's been a delight all season. He's loved it. He's been a very busy boy with his filming schedule. But make no mistake, his filming schedule for the most part has been written around his racing commitments not yeah. the other way around that only clashed for the final round in Bahrain with late filming on the movies he's involved with at the moment the Bridget Jones movie in London that's number one number two is the whole thing about a world championship about any professional sport because this is a professional sport is there's an entertainment factor mm. actually having a name, a personality like Patrick involved in the championship is a massive, massive plus. And I hope we're going to see him racing in 2016. Uh, it's been a delight to see him and the whole Proton uh, competition team uh, rise to the challenge where the, the Porsche has not necessarily been the car to have all year in GTE Am. Um, you know, whatever it is, whether or not it's the tar development, we'll talk about a little while on the pro cars as against what you get on the Am. Uh, the inherent, you know, uh, disadvantage at times in certain conditions that you'll find with the, the Porsche rear-engined layout. But they've fought all year, and it's been a pleasure to see that. And we're going to see them back, and that's 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 another great aspect to this World Championship. We're not getting into the position which we thought that perhaps we might, John, with some of these program squads, which is, you know, these guys come along, spend the money one year, and go away. We're seeing guys like Paul Delalana come back and say, I didn't do it that year. I'm going to come and have another go, and another, and another, punching harder and harder. And you're right by the way, with what you said a little earlier, that contribution towards the qualifying, I think, has made most of these guys raise their game. Yeah, and certainly Paul Delalara was saying, you know, it's the first time he's had low fuel and, and new tyres. And it, it, I think it contributed to his confidence behind the wheel as well. Um, Aston Martin we've mentioned, but the 98 car was the one that was further up the field. Uh, with Paul Dallalana, Matthias Lauda coming of age, I feel, uh, yeah. a man who had to fight for his place effectively, let's not forget, at the start of the season, uh, has, I think, developed into a very, very competent uh, endurance driver. And then the battle at the head of the field. You, you've mentioned this, Graham, but um, two Ferraris, AF Corsa, have to be there, of course, to make it a proper championship, uh, and SMP Racing. Uh, Manu Collard, still driving as well as I've ever seen him. And there was just a moment, wasn't there, at the end of the year, as you said, we had waves of yeah. of people, you know, looking good in this part of the championship, in the GTE arm side of the championship. There was just a moment when it looked like SMP Racing had had let it all get to them. And you know, all of a sudden, the confidence ebbed away and they all looked very edgy and very nervous. And, of course, that's when someone like Manu can lead and the win at Shanghai, all of a sudden we were going, oh, hang on a minute, have we got yeah. another headline to write here? Uh, well, ex exactly like that. Before we move on, though, John, I just want to drag drag you back to, you talked about Aston Martin. Mm -hmm. There's one name I did want to lob in there because it, for me, was one of the emotional moments of the season. That was the appearance of Benny Simonson yes. on the entry uh, for just one race 
uh, in the 96 Aston Martin, subbing for Earl Goethe. Um, it was a delight to see Benny, of course, the uh, younger brother of uh, the late and much lamented Alan Simonson. Um, and he joined in for old in the number 96 car. But to back to the front of the field, you're right. They rose to the occasion. Rui Aguash, we know how quick he is. Manu, is, it's like the Peter Pan of endurance racing, isn't it? Um, was it his 21st consecutive Le Mans appearance this year, uh, which is an astonishing record. And he, for the last two or three years, has guided the fortunes and the abilities of Francois Perotto with him. And you couldn't really want, could you, for one, another one of those classic roles for endurance racing driver, and particularly in the Pro-Am era now, is is to, to, to not just turn it on when you've got to do the business on track it's to build the confidence and the level of ability and the skill set of the the amateur driver that is paying your wages and i think manu has done a stunning job there for francois perodo it was great to see that crew uh, post season having fallen slightly short um at the at the at the final race they couldn't quite do enough although they did lead that race for a period of time to see that team walk away Buoyed up by that experience and looking to come back and do it again, I thought was, for me, exactly what that class should be about. It is about upping the game, going out to win, and if you don't quite get there, finding the will, finding the budget for that matter, finding the opportunity to come back and punch harder the next time. Um, I'll be asking this of, uh, of of every category that we go through. Um, call it most valuable player. Uh, course it, call it whatever. So have a little think about that. SMP Racing, um, great drives by their team. Um, the the Russian invasion that came a couple of years ago was met by some with raised eyebrows and slightly down the nose sniffy look. Uh, all of the Russian drivers, I believe, have done enough, uh, more than enough, to. Uh, make us take them should make everybody take them seriously and in fairness Viktor Scheiter and Alexei Bazov are two of the better ones uh, the obviously the overall victory at Le Mans sorry the class victory at Le Mans giving them 50 points was a big big push towards the championship but they did get two other wins they did. Uh, over the season and they did get a couple of pole positions as well they did. I mean, you know, before I forget another name, by the way, Earl Bamba with a couple of fantastic yes. cameo appearances uh, in the, the Dempsey car. Um, no, sorry, it was the Abu Dhabi car, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. uh, that he actually uh, he, he came out to play with for three races while Klaus Backler was busy. But for me, I know you're going to ask me that question, John. And yeah, I think there's a couple of guys in that number 72 car uh, that actually will be right to the top of that list uh, because I think Victor Scheitar, after not particularly having a brilliant time in LMP2 racing mm-hmm. for a season or so, found his feet and did he find his feet yes. in that 72 car this year? And, uh, you know, he, I think I'm right in saying his background story. He's a racer that came back to the sport through SMP racing, had to be persuaded back to racing by SMP uh, because they were looking for people to get in as a bronze or a silver driver in the various campaigns and it's taken him a little while to get there but now he's found his smile he's found his form he's found his feet and he's right up there in my top three for the GTM driver of the year yeah really that's that's very interesting um, and I like the variety that we saw this year we could probably have done with a few more cars but seven cars representing the manufacturers that we've we've mentioned um right okay let's let's put it on the line uh, who who was your gt em driver of the year 
Well, I mean, the shortlist, because you know, this is, you know, this is me. This, this is why I do yes, it. I is uh, uh, certainly worthy of an, a mention. Paolo Roberti. How yes. many times did we see Paolo Roberti put that Corvette in amongst the pro cars in qualifying or in the race? And Paolo slightly let down by misfortune of the car and by uh, the, you know, one of his teammates. But uh, Paolo Roberti, I think, would grace any field. What I love about Paolo Roberti is he's very happy with what he's got. Uh, he's not one of these kind of sullen sort of guys around the paddock. He's, uh, he's, he's a joy uh, to actually spend time with in that paddock. Uh, uh, Matthias Lauda, I thought, had a great season. Uh, but Pedro Lamy, for me, again, won the stars of the class and of any class for that matter. Uh, Francois Perodo, for me, uh, right up there as uh, someone deserving of plaudits this season. But it's going to go to Victor Scheitar for me. I have to tell you, uh, I thought he was an absolute star all season. Lexi Bassov, some great performances too. But for me, uh, the driver of the season in GTM, John, was Victor. You're listening to Graham Goodwin, the editor of DailySportsCar.com and me, John Hindorf, as we take a look back at the 2015 FIA World Endurance uh, Championship. Uh, Basov, Bertolini and Scheidt all won the championship from Collard, Perodo uh, and Lauda. And in terms of the teams, it was SMP racing the number 72 car that won from 83. AF Corsa, another Ferrari and Aston Martins, number 98 in third position. So that's GTE Am. Uh, let's go to GTE Pro. Uh, and, well, uh, an interesting mix again um, of uh, of drivers. Um, we have a drivers uh, and manufacturers championship as well as a teams championship. Hmm, how are we going to do this then? Uh, let's go to uh, pr- let's go to the teams actually, because that gives an idea of who was in which car, doing what to whom. Uh, another seven car entry at various stages uh, across the season. Seven cars at least uh, scoring uh, points there. Aston Martin with at times three cars, not right through the season. Porsche team Manti. Effectively, the works team with two and two AF courses. So again, um, it is a, a counting championship. Um, the three Aston Martins, fifth, sixth, and seventh. Um, obviously, a win for the '99 car uh, at Francorchamps. Um, decent results at Le Mans, but then they were rather hamstrung until uh, the end of the race, uh, the end of the season, with uh, a balance of performance that that didn't really help them. They got some of that back towards the end of the year, at least were a little more uh, competitive. But given that Darren Turner didn't win a race all year, in fact, I think he only got on. Did he get on the podium once? Podium, the, podium for the final race. Uh, That was the, in fact, no Aston Martin sat on a podium uh, from Le Mans onwards until Bahrain, which is extraordinary, bearing in mind the pace we could see. But I think what we found in the final gasps of the season, John, was one of the major reasons why. And, you know, it was one of those stories that kind of sort of teased out and I went and checked and indeed it was kind of confirmed that one of the big problems for Aston Martin was not of their own making the balance performance certainly didn't help some of their looks certainly didn't help and I still fundamentally believe there was something wrong with that 97 car I don't quite know I can't quite put my finger on it it was the one car of the three by the way that was a new chassis for this season uh, yes, that's just right. never quite seemed to be there despite the quality of the driver lineup but the issue wasn't an issue that they had rather it was that porsche put a lot of resource and time into tire development because of course it is an open tire formula much as 
every car on that grid was wearing Michelin tyres don't presume that they're necessarily the same Michelin tyres and don't certainly don't presume that they're tyres that necessarily suit each of those cars in the same way because you've got a rear-engine Porsche, uh, rear-mid-engine Ferrari and, of course, the front-engined uh, Aston Martin. And what we certainly know is that Porsche did an awful lot of tyre testing for the latter part of the season mm. and it showed. And, of course, because that then tends to give the, the development bias towards a car uh, with an engine at the rear of the car, that by attachment with the same rubber is going to help Ferrari more than it did Aston Martin. Uh, and in fact, Greg, that, we did see that in the US as well. To, in some ways, perhaps a greater extent, Michelin brought out a, uh, a single stint tyre for the Tudor United Sports Car Championship just as a technical exercise. We had that for a couple of races, and that was heavily biased pun sort of intended, towards the rear and mid-engine cars. And Ferrari and Porsche would have loved to have raced on that for the rest of the years, not so much their uh, their competitors. It, it's an issue, isn't it? When Because to the outside world, everybody's on Michelins. It's the same as at the front of the LMP1 field. Everybody's on Michelins, but not necessarily the same Michelins, and certainly not necessarily the same compound and constructions that are bolted onto the front and the rear of an Audi are the same as that that's on a 919 hybrid or a TSO 40. Same can be said for GTs. And there was a lot of people getting aerated about balance of performance, um, particularly with Porsche. And, you know, you and I spent a goodly amount of time on various social media going, guys, maybe, maybe, but don't forget the tyres. And the tyres, you know, has to be something that people (laughs) consider, which interestingly, of course, the things that aren't in balance of performance that I always think that people forget... Tyres, one of them, but also just how the team executes is the other. If you make mistakes, no amount of balance of performance should be putting that right for you. It, it, it's got to be. This is a full professional class. Simple as that. And it's a team game. So the reality there is, all things being equal, what performance balancing should do is give you an even chance of actually winning. After that, it's down to the drivers in the car and it's down to the teams in the pit lane. Now, okay, there's going to be a further... Um, rebalancing, if you like, next year to do with the uh, the fueling times and pit stop times. That that will be addressed in the new regulations, I believe. But the reality here is that this was as pure a competition in GT racing as you should be able to see anywhere. For, you know, it's it's never completely even. There's always a kind of a margin of error. But the reality here is, and they're not going to like me saying it, is Aston Martin didn't quite do enough a good enough job this year. Uh, I'm afraid, and in part that was because. Because there was more resource being thrown at it by Porsche, the story of the season worldwide, mm. Porsche, um, and in part it was because, you know, really I think what they got was was I think thoroughly outpaced at periods of this uh, this season. But this is a very pure competition, and there is nobody at uh, ProDrive at Aston Martin Racing that would want it any other way. And I think what they've done at the end of the season and talking to several of the kind of principals there in Bahrain and beyond is they've gone away to a good old think about it and you can be sure they're going to come back punching. They're they're plotting, they're planning. It may well be that we see part of that plan in 2016. I think we might see another part of the plan maybe as late as 2017. 
as it shook out, Aston Martin were third in the championship and, and well off the pace of the Ferraris and, and Porsches that battled through to the final race in Bahrain. Let's remind ourselves that the uh, Ferraris got four pole positions uh, on the season uh, and Porsche got precisely, oh, none. Aston Martin took two pole positions uh, in the year uh, as well. Uh, quite remarkable, um, quite remarkable performance from Porsche, uh, particularly after Le Mans. But the margin of victory, four points, and yep. frankly, but for a broken wheel on James Collado's car, uh, the Ferrari at the six hours of Bahrain, that manufacturer's GT manufacturer's championship, which is much coveted by Porsche, Ferrari and Aston Martin and adding to that Ford when they come in next year, that could have gone the other way. Uh, it most certainly could. And, you know, it was uh, it, it was so, so tight. And it really did keep us on the edge of our seats had we been able to sit at any point uh, this year when there wasn't much opportunity for that. But it was it was a fantastic, pure racing battle and that's i think what we've loved throughout the kind of the the, the kind of the genesis john genesis john of the this modern gte class is that it has had that pureness about it it's one of the reasons why we'll talk about we we'll talk about waivers and blah 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 but that's i think one of the reasons why we get into this pretty sharp comparison between gt3 and gte at times there is balance of performance but it's not quite to the extent that you see elsewhere uh, but ferrari um <sighs> Bizarrely, we just saw bad luck and a little bit of bad judgment strike the 51 car in their defence. But well, hang on. We, I mean, they 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 had a nightmare at the Nurburgring. There's a nightmare at the Nurburgring, and that n- nightmare continued uh, the following uh, race weekend with the same right. electronic woes actually going back. But we could glory at that point in the the genesis if you like of what i think is going to be a new force for ferrari in endurance racing which was the the partnership between davide rigon and uh, james collado it looked yes. very much like the supporting act they inevitably were last year it didn't look like that this year well did it? interestingly we were talking about this at the gulf 12 hours johnny palmer and i and somebody emailed and said um or uh, tweeted actually and said David Regon, who was by the way the star of that race <laughs> said uh, they were saying you know where's he come from what's he been doing has he finally found his feet I believe the Collado Regon partnership is already looking already looking like dare I say it a Mucker and Turner in GT terms a Christensen Capello McNish um sort of you know in in prototype terms you need to build these partnerships within a team i think they're already looking like that and if you want to know how much they've improved they were 80 odd points behind their teammates in the championship last year this year there were 12 points behind yeah, and that and that as you quite rightly say, John, almost entirely down to that broken wheel at the end of the season. It was a gnat between the two of them going into the final race. Well, we, we and, had the know, situation in the centre of the season, Graham, after the two... You know, Let's put the two Ferraris together. Win for the 51 car at, at Silverstone. Not great races for either of them um, at uh, Spa, where Aston Martin and the 99 car won. Uh, 71 car wins Le Mans. Right, that's a big chunk of points. But 
um, it was only 14 points more than than their their more illustrious counterparts. Then the bad luck for Jimmy and Tony in the 51 car, defending world champions, uh, remember, uh, who then bounced back to a victory at Fuji. Really interesting how this went on because there was a time at the beginning, uh, at the second half of the season rather, maybe after America, where you and I were asking the question, Graham. RAF course are going to have to favour the 71 car in we the did. points battle. We most certainly did. I'm going to slightly correct you because, of course, they didn't win Le Mans. Uh, uh, they just got the most points because sorry. it's Corvette that won. But you're absolutely right yes. in terms of WC points because the Corvette doesn't score. Yes. But um, I just want to say a quick word that's about That's an anomaly that Lado. needs fixing as well, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's uh, just, uh, just a quick point about Mr. Collado because – Part of that rebirth for him, I think he's fallen in love with the sport again. Yes. And it was one of those conversations. It's a conversation you and I have had on there a couple of times, John. But here's another example of it, uh, where all of a sudden people who've lived in a different area of the sport, whether that be touring cars, whether or not that be single-seaters, suddenly get it. And there was a moment for James Collado uh, and I think it was possibly Fuji. I sat down with James at, in the garage at Fuji, and he all of a sudden said, "I just suddenly realised I'm loving it." Mm. And it was uh, the, the, the story he told was this: that he had uh, several years in top line single seaters, last two years in GP3, uh, GP2 rather, where he was very successful indeed. He had a substantial amount of sponsorship, you know, seven figure sponsorship. Mm. Uh, fees uh, going his way, if you like. But still at the end of those race weekends, he'd get back on the plane and be worried about paying his phone bill. (laughs) But but, but it's it's a real-world situation there, which is that, in effect, the sport was sucking out the lifeblood of sponsorship. And yes, potentially taking forward, but not hard enough to make that breakthrough. And getting that break with Ferrari, what that meant for James was he's on a career track again, He's got something to aim for, which is Porsche and Aston Martin, and for that matter, his teammates. And he's loving it. He's loving the team atmosphere. And he suddenly, in the same way that we've seen with guys in LMP1 and elsewhere in GT, he's he's getting it. And that's a fabulous thing to see. Well, uh, uh, and I, what I like to see from all of these guys is when they realise it's all right to be emotional about it. It's all right to show <laughs> how they feel. In, in some ways... And it's bred into them that they're a bit too cool for school in single-seaters. They've got to be fairly stoic. If you see them in the pit lane when something's gone wrong, uh, you've got to be very careful what you say. It's all very PR-led. Um, contrast that with um, Fred Makovicki driving up the back of a Ferrari under full-course caution at the Nürburgring yep. and the attitude that we got from the Ferrari drivers and particularly James's attitude uh, about about that... He's not scared now to be emotional and assure the fact that he actually cares about what he's doing. And, and that's what we... Passion. There you go. That's Love the exact it. word I was leading to. Passion. And, and that's exactly it. And there you go. There's the contrast with their teammates in the 51 car because you know, Jimmy Bruni can show emotion at times but can be pretty impassive at other times. He's that fantastic blend that I think you only get from an Italian, which is, you know, there's times when you really don't want to ask him a question because mm. you know you're going to get that. But there's other times when he's so engaged and the sparkles in the eye and it's an absolute delight. And then you've got Tony Villander. Well, the Villander. absolute Iceman. Villander, I, I have to tell you, um, 
two of the best drives of the season Fuji? in any class from Tony. Fuji and Shanghai. Yeah. Uh, where Iron Man to- stints weren't that. Well, was it nearly three hours that he did in, in one goal? He or did, was- and he did four and a half hours at, uh, at I think that's right, four and a half hours in two stints and two uh, t- two periods at, uh, at Shanghai. Mm. Uh, astonishing stuff from Tony Philander. And that's just because, you know, cometh the hour, cometh the man. And it was Tony more than Jimmy that actually dragged them by the bootstraps back up the points order. And, you know, for, for someone to outshine Jimmy Bruni uh, in terms of uh, both the sustained pace and the consistency, then that, my friend, is a world-class drive. Ultimately, 131.5 points for uh, the AF Corset guys, Jimmy Bruner and Tony Vlander in second. Wasn't quite enough to catch uh, Richard Leitz uh, at the top of the championship. We've mentioned that Porsche took the uh, Endurance Cup for GT manufacturers. And Porsche Team Manti, the 91 car, uh, won the team's championship by a scant six points. Um, Patrick, um, uh, uh, Richard uh, Leeds, rather, taking the championship on his own, courtesy of a bit of swapping and changing of his, of his teammates. But it'd be wrong not to mention Michael Christensen um, in, in this whole piece. He finishes third in the uh, in the, the championship. Um, I think there's another youngish driver who is beginning to come of age as well. I'm delighted for Richard winning the championship. Um, I know he would say, if he was on the telephone now, he would say it was a team effort and he couldn't have done it without the team. And with blah, 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 yes. But he is that good. But he, <laughs> he is, is that, that good. good. It is, again, it's one of those guys who seems to have been ever-present. It's delightful that the pair of them are going to get a chance to have another crack at this in a GTE Pro car next mm-hmm. year, albeit not a factory car, but a proton competition car. But delighted those two are going to get a chance at that title again this year. Uh, Ricard Leitz, um, pure class, as far as I'm concerned. Um, he may not be always, ultimately, the quickest GTE driver in the field, but boy, is he consistent. Boy, can you rely on him when the chips are down to drag the very best performance you can out of six hours of race. Racing. Yes. Um, and, you know, yes, it's a team performance. I think Michael Christensen will be with us for a long, long time at the very highest Agreed. level of GT racing. Uh, but Rick Ardleitz deserves those plaudits. It's been, a, I think, a great season for Porsche. Boy, we're going to say that a few times in the next uh, next uh, next few minutes, John. Um, they dragged that championship result, those, those championship results, plural, uh, out of a season uh, for time, uh, time and time again, did not look like it was going to produce the goods, and uh, a, a hugely professional effort, as is entirely appropriate for a GTO, GTE professional uh, effort. A couple of things in the season that stood out for me for Porsche, obviously quarter, first and second, and frankly, they looked like they were in a different class at that point. It was formation. Uh, flying, uh, and the 91 car got the victory. That was the good side, for sure. Slightly irked me uh, how Porsche dealt with what we were all expecting and had... It hadn't exactly been trailed, but certainly it had been rumbling that Olaf Manti would be stepping aside at the end of the season. And the fact that nobody could talk about that, um, particularly as... Olaf won the last race of the season, um, uh, won the championship rather at the last race of the season for driver and team. 
and and I felt we couldn't give him the plaudits that he deserves as an individual and his team deserves as an entity, and, and that was unnecessarily Blunt. straight list. I was going yeah. to say by Porsche. I know that they want to announce everything when they come to their end of year. But we've had similar things happening in the past with other major manufacturers. And people are going to think I'm having a go at Porsche here. I am, but I'm not. Just personally, I felt that it would have been nice to do something for Olaf Manti in the same way that we did something for Alex Wirtz. In the and the same, same way, way that we did something for H, to for, be honest with you, exactly well, the same way. Exactly, for, 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 for Houghton Haynes, for Tom Christensen, for all of those guys. You know, Manti is such a yeah. big name in the GT sport. And I completely agree, John. I think the, the, the difficulty for Porsche was, and I'm going to give them this credit before we get into that, that analysis, is there was so much. There was so much to recognise, to celebrate, to respond to because again we didn't know it was going to pass we could have lost that world title in the last 15 minutes that car was dead on its wheels yeah in in lmp1 yes so i think you know but the reality was it was so heavily trailed not big at the end of the race but for the whole weekend that was going to be the case and and yeah i think the word is it is disappointing um, that and it may be who knows it may be that actually that was Olaf's choice that he didn't want uh, it to it to be that quite is a very now that is a very fair point and it, that would yeah. be very Olaf uh, in yeah, fairness because um, he's not retiring he's not retiring yes. he's actually got a full factory GT3 effort for the uh, Nurburgring 24 hours to come and why would um, you not frankly with a bloke who <laughs> has forgotten more about winning Nurburgring races and particularly Nurburgring 24s right. than most people will will ever know we, I, I thought and in fact now that you've said that um, Louise uh, Beckett at the who has by the way been a stunning uh, she's been this age. year she's, she's worked just a so hard year. and worked us out uh, worked, she's worked hard for us she, she used to be six foot tall do you realise that that's true enough um, in the pit lane for us on WEC TV um, the, uh, she stuck the microphone under Olaf's nose at uh, at the prize giving ceremony on the beach of Bahrain by the way um, whatever anybody else thinks about the WEC good baller and different my god can they throw a party Gerard Nevoe <laughs> stand up and take a bow the the um, and, and he was fairly sanguine about it which you might be right maybe it was as much his decision as anyone else's but I still think it would have been nice for us to be able to say and he's bowing out with a, a, a win. We can see it yeah. in retrospect, I suppose. So maybe I'm making slightly too slightly too much of it. A, a brilliant victory by Porsche team Manti. Uh, Manti's operation um, uh, has been has had Porsche uh, involved in it for a very long time. A more formal involvement with I think just over fifty percent of the company having been bought by Porsche what a year or so ago, Graham. Um, and now I think Olaf. Stepping away from the World Endurance Championship, but keeping very much one hand on VLN and the uh, 24 hours of the Nürburgring. Uh, LMGTE then, uh, driver or MVP in LMGTE. It's a tough one, Graham, because as we've said in many a times yeah. when we've talked about the the the, uh, the the joint classes, we expect the pro drivers to be operating at the very highest level and. I was talking to a young driver the other day, funny enough, um, about 
GT racing and racing in endurance racing. Uh, and in fact, Andy Prio made this point to me, and I passed on the advice that Andy Prio, um, or the point that Andy Prio had, had made to me, to this young driver. If you're going to be a works driver in a GTE category, whether or GT category, whether it's GT3 or GTE, whether you're with a pro or an arm driver alongside you, you are working to the same kind of performance levels, both in and out of the car, that would be expected of you in any form of professional motorsport all the way up to F1. It is that kind of pressure on these guys and they work at that level and they thrive, Graham, at that level. It's just a delight, isn't it? I mean, the, 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 great, uh, the great part of it, and Andy Prio is an example to everybody on, the, on, on, on that level, John, is don't mistake professional with aloof. Because they're not. There's oh, moments you don't, 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 you know, <laughs> don't expect people to kind of let the level of concentration we expect uh, for these guys to, you know, they're going to have that, that thousand yard stare as they're kind of psyching them up. But actually, they are absolutely, utterly professional. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that it, it sucks the light out, light out of them. It doesn't mean that takes uh, takes away an, an ounce of their character and the, their level of entertainment for us. And, and the, the kind of the, the they are utterly ambassadorial in terms of the 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 people that they're paying their wages, which are the, the big manufacturers for for GT racing. But it, it, for me. Because I know what the ne- the the, uh, the question is going to be, John. Mm. Next is who stands out of the, uh, uh, amongst uh, those? Exactly my point. When you have the bar set so high, tiny little differences are all that you can look at. And it would be easy to say, well, then it's got to be a Porsche driver because you know they won the teams and the uh, and the drivers' championship. What I like to look at, Graham, is people who have got a little bit more out of the package than perhaps you might have expected. Well, I, oddly enough, John, despite what we've just said about the likes of, likes of Patrick Pillay and about Ricard Leitz have been great all season, I'm not going to pick a Porsche driver amongst mm. my picks at all. I am going to mention uh, Marcus Sorensen. I think has been great in the first full year for GT Racing. I'm going to mention Fernando Reese, who I think has been extremely good this year. Extraordinary. And I think has stepped out of the shadow and, and actually uh, been a real player in the uh, GTE stakes. But uh, the top two for me are both Ferrari drivers and those Ferrari drivers, and I'm struggling to pick uh, either of them, uh, but it's between Tony Volander for those fantastic late season drives in the number 51 car, but I am going to drag out of the hat James Collado. Um, yeah. The reason for, for that pick is because I think this has been his breakthrough year. I think, uh, as with so many other professional drivers in this part of the sport and elsewhere, when you start to get to the stage where you're scoring those big points, uh, points wins regularly, something gets turned on there in terms of the, the, the drive forward. And I think we're going to see that young man uh, as a very key part indeed 
of the future for Ferrari and sports car racing. James uh, I'm, I'm pleased you mentioned Fernando Reese. He's very much a quiet man in the paddock. Let's his driving do the the talking. And my goodness, he has been outstanding this year. And delighted to say he'll be back. Delighted to say that joining us now um, on the line is Bruce Jones, who has been one half, uh, at least one half, uh, of of the WEC coverage on RadioLeMond.com uh, this year. Hello, Bruce. Thank you for joining us. Hi, John. Good to be with you. And do you mean I eat more than half of half of the biscuits on on show? Wasn't well, almost certainly yes. And the uh, you've got longer arms than most. Um, you're, you're joining us as we're about to go into the the prototype categories, but I would just like uh, a few thoughts from you on GTE AM and GTE Pro. Um, seven full season entries for both of those categories. Victor Scheitar and as you've just heard, James Gallardo, the picks from Graham Goodwin uh, in terms of his drivers of the year in those categories. A, a banner year for Porsche, clearly. How did you see it and who would have been the drivers for you who stuck out in 2015, Bruce? I'm not wanting to be a copycat here, but Victor Scheiter has been one of the stars across sports car racing this year, so I can't look anywhere else but uh, the Russian driver. He's definitely ready for, for steps up to the prototypes. He's got the speed. We've seen it in the European Le Mans series as well. Um, the standout driver in GTM for me. Uh, and very much the pairing of Collado and Rigon caught my eye this year because if there was any bad luck to be had, they had it. Their, their season seemed to be... As frequently as the rain hit the WEC in 2015, bad luck hit that pairing. And Collado and Regon were always on a recovery drive. Last year, Collado was a huge disappointment because his form in GP2 in previous seasons had suggested great things in single-seaters. He came in to the World Endurance Championship in 2014 and in no, to no small degree shown the way by fellow Brit Sam Bird when they were both racing Ferraris together. Sam has obviously gone on and had a fantastic time uh, in LMP2. But Collado and Regon, I thought they were absolutely fantastic didn't get the returns they wanted but last minute swerve away i still think jamaria bruni just doesn't put a wheel wrong year <laughs> in year out i mean he is he's just nailed on he is absolutely astonishing of course though things can change we're going to the 488 ferrari next year and maybe they won't have the performance they're looking at but you know that whatever the performance of whatever ferrari they put into bruni is the benchmark so i can give Give him no higher praise than that. Great sadness that the Aston Martins couldn't get up and play this year. So mm. the likes of Darren Turner had to keep their humour and uh, maybe in fact focus more on the Goodwood Revival, his favourite meeting of the year, while waiting for it to come back. But Ferrari and uh, Bruni, fantastic. Uh, Bruni, um, well, 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 reputedly the highest paid GT driver in the paddock much sought after was tried to be poached by Porsche for their new program from 17 onwards and and stayed loyal uh, to Ferrari whatever they're paying him though Bruce it's worth every every last euro because he does have that ability to to pull something out of the hat and to do it with pretty good grace frankly Uh, very good grace um it is the fact they just know whatever the car is capable of, he will deliver it. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't seem to care how many stints they ask him to do consecutively. He just does it. He goes out and you almost... It's bizarre. The better he drives, the less you actually watch what he's doing. You just <laughs> expect him to deliver. I mean, that's the accolade I can give him. You're not looking for him to maybe pinch a tenth here or there. You expect it. 
and he delivers. And interestingly, actually, something you said there makes me think of something else. No matter how many or how few stints he gets asked to do, he does it, he does it in the same way, and he delivers. A lot of drivers, if they're not in the car and not being used, and there were times this year when Vlander was given the nod over Bruni to do those Ironman stints we talked about earlier. That didn't change Jimmy's state of mind at all, it seemed to me. No, he's very, very, very calm, and also that pairing. I mean, once you've got a pairing that's solid gold like that, just keep it going. They know how to get on with each other. They know how to deliver. They obviously can talk each other through the setup on the car. I don't know whether they're similar or different, but they come to a very good compromise and they're rarely out of the mix. Have, so that's why they're employed. Have AF Corsa stumbled on another pairing um, like the Vlander Bruni, like the uh, Mucker and uh, Turner that we talked about earlier on for, for Aston Martin uh, with Collado and, and Regon? I think they have. I really do. I mean, it would be nice to see them have some straightforward races where they can take on the uh, the Bruni-Villander pairing and anyone else who's firing well over the course of the weekend. But it was a perpetual case of fighting to come back from one problem or another. But I, I think the flashes of speed we saw increasingly through the year means that James Collado is 100% a fully-fledged sports car driver. The speed was always there, but there were other things happening. Now he's he's got the measure of it. And... I think that pairing is going to go from strength to strength. Again, two single-seater converts, and it doesn't always happen overnight, but they're really, really making it work. So let's see what the 488 can do in 2016, but I think they are at the level where they will deliver if the car's good enough. Uh, Bruce Jones from RadioLeMond.com joining us uh, on the line with Graham Goodwin, the editor of DailySportsCar.com. He sat beside me in the WEC TV box for the Hall of the Season, Graham did. I'm John Hindorf. If you're just joining us, we've gone through the GTE and GT Pro categories. We're about to go into prototypes as we look back on the FIA World Endurance Championship for 2015 here on RadioLamont.com. Now, back down through the years, it was often said that the secondary class of prototype racing at the very highest end of endurance racing was quite often fast but almost always fragile in the early days of 675 the cars were pared down to the weight of a shopping trolley and inevitably things fell off broke or just couldn't last six 12 or 24 hours those days are long behind us and as with the rest of endurance racing now the 21st century endurance racing is about sprinting between filling the car up with petrol and putting a new set of tyres and perhaps a driver into the seat and the new generation of LMP2 teams and drivers have had to evolve and understand that and this year in the FIA World Endurance Championship, LMP2 delivered that in spades. What we've also seen over the last couple or three years is an influx of single-seater drivers using their knowledge of slicks, wings and the black arts of aerodynamic setup to the very best to be able to wring out the last tenth or half a tenth of performance from these fairly sophisticated racing cars nowadays that we see in LMP2. Bruce Jones and Graham Goodwin are with me. Nine teams in the championship this year, uh, gentlemen. And uh, Bruce, if I, if I may, I'll start with you. Um, obviously, there there is the incident to talk about, or the incidents to talk about in Fuji. But if we put that aside to start with, it, the 
the ex the, the look from the outside of LMP2 in terms of the cars haven't changed very much. More coupes now, of course, than before. The racing, oh, even from five years ago, has changed beyond compare. As have the drivers who are in those racing cars. They've changed to the extent that I would almost go and watch a race exclusive for, exclusively for LMP2 cars. I mean, we see the categories fantastic also in the European Le Mans series. It just provides great racing. But I think the cars look brilliant. The quality of the driver lineups has gone through the roof, and it's only going to get stronger. Um, there are so many ways you can look at it, though, uh, in terms of the G-Drive racing duo against the single entry from KCMG. Of course, they were yeah. punching... You know, it was two against one. It was nip and tuck. And certainly tactically, it was very interesting. Um, I just thought it was an absolutely fantastic subplot to the main top category, to LMP1. And it was you always wanted to keep an eye on what was happening because they were so close together on times. While at certain circuits, of course, the Porsche might have had an advantage over the Audis and the Toyotas were seeing what they could do. You could never really predict which of the LMP2 teams was going to be at the top of the pile on any given race meeting, which was absolutely enthralling. And then there was some exceptional driving in it. And as you've just alluded, John, some slightly less than exceptional driving. But we'll come to that later. Yes, I'm sure. It's a brilliant season. And if I almost have to have one image, one car, I'll remember from 2015, it was just the gorgeous, gorgeous appearance of the KCMG Orica 05. It looked absolutely sensational. And I hope other teams can follow their example in producing a car that looks stunning when it's standing still, let alone when it's out on the circuit. So in terms of racing liveries, still, you know, it might be an ephemeral part of a championship, but over the course of years, and particularly when you look back, you know, in years to come, a car with a really great livery still stands out. I think the others will raise their game to match perhaps next year. I know it's an aside, but to me, it's still quite important. The cars look good. No, I I, I agree with that, Bruce. And, Graham, Bruce has mentioned, obviously, the two major protagonists. The top three was G-Drive, KCMG, and G-Drive, the the other car, the 28 car. Far more than just uh, supporting cast, particularly in the case of Signatech, Alpine, Stracker Racing, Team Sard, um, Orc Racing, um, all right, um, they were only in the first, uh, only really showed in the first couple of, of rounds with the 35 car. You've got to talk about extreme speed motorsports, though, because the Tequila Patron-sponsored team, with an absolute nightmare start to the season, uh, their plans thrown into complete disarray, stuck with it, probably didn't get the results that they wanted, but at times, probably didn't get the results that they deserved. Uh, Particularly with Ryan DL in the car, those cars look very good indeed. Uh, I tend to agree, John, and I think there's lots of subplots here. Mm. Bruce is Bruce is 100% correct, by the way. Everything he said about the championship and the the depth and that that battling, um, you know, is the the core plot. But behind that, there was the the fight that uh, Tequila Petroni SM had through the early part of the season with three different pairs of cars, uh, not just in the WC but elsewhere. It gave their crew uh, off track uh, a real headache and they fought back i thought extremely well by far and away the standout talent in that team was ryan dl by some distance razzle dazzle it's absolutely and uh, you know and correctly so he's gonna he's gonna uh, that's he's gonna wear that and wear that proudly <laughs> uh, a not dissimilar start actually uh, emerged with striker racing with the the very late appearance um all bit quite temporary i'm afraid for the the dome the dome nissan 
the, the big difference between the two, not just the chassis, of course, but the engine. And I have to say, for me, I'm afraid the HPD engine just did not shine in that company this year. But uh, Stracker Racing uh, bringing the uh, the Gibson to the World Endurance Championship and I'll be joined by another next year. Um, but they were beginning to find their feet at the end. It took a while for the team to unravel the, the mysteries of the, the Gibson chassis. I think we might see something a bit more from them in next season. Uh, so, but not really showing itself in the points stakes over the, the full season, uh, you know, between the two squads. Then we had emerging at the end, another of those teams in common with Labra competition that just did not get the points on the board until the late race of the season. We could go on and on and on about Tom Dillman and whether that's fair or not. But the reality was they got a great result before Dillman joined the team with that second place overall and shone from there on in. They'll be back with what... Um, you know, uh, Bruce very accurately described as uh, you know a, a, another standout livery. If they keep the same kind of livery theme with that coupe that we know they're going to field next year, that one is going to be a crowd pleaser as well. And that's all before we get to a couple of one-off appearances with Jota, with Pegasus and Alex Brundle on the right tyres at the right time, showing what he can do coming back to the sport after a, a year off. And that's before we get to the three main protagonists. Yeah, and and... It's it's interesting. One of the things, Bruce, that I'm going to miss about LMP2, and not, I mean, we could do two hours on on just this, is the variety that we've had this year. The variety of chassis, the variety of engine, the variety of tyre. Um, that, to a certain extent, is going to disappear uh, when the new regulations come in with just the four, possibly just the three chassis. Uh, still waiting to find out what will happen with Delara, whether that one will actually even uh, show its face. Uh, it could have, it could be it could have been a bit of a lame duck year this year could certainly be still be the same next year but we haven't had that we've had good racing and you've got to say with the G drive KCMG scrap at the the front of the field um, it swung backwards and forwards G drive won at Spa uh, won at uh, Silverstone had a nightmare at Spa the 26 car their 28 car. Um, had the the better look there. KCMG win Le Mans. Fantastic result for them. Then it just started to swing towards G-Drive through the rest of the season. Is it is it unfair for me to... Or would it be unfair for anybody to look at those two cars, the 47 and the 26, and say it was a tale of the pro drivers, Sam Bird versus Nick Tandy, uh, or did the uh, non-pros, the silver and the bronzes, play a bigger part, perhaps, uh, than people give them credit for? Uh, yes, it's a simple answer to that. And I think what we're seeing in LMP2 is it's a springboard for teams, potentially to bigger things. Or, but I actually think a lot of people want to stop at LMP2 because I think you look at uh, the privateer end of LMP1 and I think that's a very difficult pond to go playing in. Um, but I think what we're seeing is, is drivers with a little bit of sports car experience and lots of experience in other areas coming in and really rising uh, to the challenge. This is, it's in many ways, becoming the biggest shop window for a racing driver, I think, in international motor racing at present. There are too many single-seater formulae, too few drivers come out the top end. This is a chance for them to drive in extremis. We're not talking about a little sprint race here or there. We're talking about, and we certainly in 2015 had every weather condition barring cats and frogs. Um, to go playing in and I think it really gave 
the protagonists a chance to show their hand. And I think people like Matt Housen really, really stood up to the challenge. Richard Bradley showed great speed. And going to the G-Drive cars, Sam Bird, undoubted star. But the, he, the others were not that far behind. I mean, Sam was super consistent, very, very quick. But what I think we're seeing in LMP2 is an overall improvement in talent. But each set of drivers is getting better. Not just one driver in a crew or one team point. getting a bit better. The whole thing is so professional, it's driving itself up. Uh, and in some ways, Graham, that's a good point. That that's very good point that Bruce makes. And in some ways, the twenty six car were fairly clever this year. Roman Rusinov had been rated as a gold, and that might have taken him out of the championship altogether. What it meant was that he actually probably, in fact, no, he did do less driving than Julian Canal did in that twenty six car. So Julian had to pull his weight in the same way as Matt Housen and, and Richard Bradley had to do in in the 47. And in, in point of fact, that's been very cleverly done by Roman in 2015 because he's looking to be downgraded back to a silver for 2016, having, call it gaming the system, call it working the system. But the fact was, he didn't do as much work as the silver driver. Yeah, absolutely right. But he won. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's before we get into that, though, um, plaudits to Roman for uh, once again bringing forward with his efforts, with his daytime employer, because his day job is he works for the G Drive company, yes, uh, dealing with marketing for it's, it's, it's a fuel... ridiculous number of um, of of, uh, of gas stations in. Uh, in the, the Russian marketplace. What, what, what people probably don't know is that G-Drive is a high-performance petrol brand that comes out of, is it one of the Gazprom? Gazprom. Yeah. Yes, correct. Um, but but I mean, through his kind of efforts and through Gazprom's efforts, it gave us those two fabulous-looking cars this year with very different sorts of uh, you know trios aboard the cars. I mean, before we forget about the two that ultimately duked it out, plaudits for the 28 crew. And in particular, one of the standout uh, talents, I think, of this year, who will be back next year in a different car, and that's Pipa Durrani. Because oh. uh, Pipa Durrani, I think very many people felt, uh, uh, you know, uh, had the the talent to deserve an opportunity to at least test in a P1 car at the end of the year. And let's hope... I'll put my hand re- up and say that. that. I'll put yep, my hand up and say that. I was quite vociferous about that, and I, yeah. and I still think that it was the case. But I, I, I think we'll see a repeat of that, uh, that initiative in 2016, and I hope he gets his, his chance there. Um, beyond that, of course, we then get into, for the 28 car, uh, the shenanigans we had in, uh, in Fuji, and then the fumble we saw at Shanghai from Ricardo Gonzalez that basically cost the team an opportunity to, to fight to the end of the season. Uh, we'll come to that one in a moment. But then you come to that 26 car, and for me, Roman Rusinov um, was, without a doubt, the weaker of the three mm-hmm. in the, the latter part of the season. I made it very clear in conversation with me after the Bahrain race at the, the test uh, with Dunlop in Bahrain, made it very clear to me that he wasn't very satisfied with his own performance. You know, was he playing the game? Was he just disappointing uh, at, that, at that particular point in the season? We'll never know, I think is the, the answer. But big plaudits to Julian Canal, because mm-hmm. this is a man that has won the big races in GT cars, has won in GTM, in LMP, uh, sorry, in GTE, GT1 in a, in a Celine, and in GTEM in Corvettes with Labra. Mm-hmm. To step up to LMP2 and do as well as he did, I thought was an exceptional uh, performance from him. 
Then you get to KCMG and let's well, hope Well, just, just before back. you go on to that, Graham, yeah. I think part of Julian Canal's improvement has to be laid at the foot of Sam Bird because it is one of... And, and we. it's easy for... All of us, even those of us who are in the paddock and closer to the sport, it's easy for us to forget that the senior driver in terms of experience, whether it's a Nick Tandy or it's a Sam Bird in this case, those are the two championship contending cars that we're talking about, it's not just their job to drive fast, they've also got a team role to play with the Julian Canal in that scenario and say to them, I think we can find you, you know, let's look at the lap. Here's where I think we should concentrate because I think that's where we can make up more time. Let's get you comfortable through this corner, through that corner. It's a job that I watched being done with um, Mike Newton uh, down through the years with Tommy Erdos doing that job and doing it exceptionally. And I think it's a very underrated part of what the pro in inverted commas the gold or the silver driver has to do and it's something that isn't always seen directly but the results of it are seen particularly in the case of, of someone like Julian Canal. I think that's exactly right John and you know it's something that I'll be blunt Sam wasn't very good at last year this year he's come of age and he's come of age and he's raised his own game but you're absolutely right he's raised the game with the whole team with that it's not as simple as lock, load and fire, you know, the the top pro in the team. You've got to add more than that. And he's come out, I think, absolutely smelling of roses and, and everything else that's pleasant from this year. He was the standout talent in LMP2. And boy, there was some competition for that plaudit. KCMG, meanwhile, had a great season. We'll come again back to... to no, no, uh, no, no, to, keep going. That's fine. Fuji, but I don't think they had a weak link there. Nick Tandy was very, very quick, but had the odd mistake. Uh, Richard Bradley was very, very quick, and there was the, the Fuji incident. Matt Housen, I don't recall making a mistake all year, I have to tell you. I don't remember Matt making a mistake, and I think he did extraordinarily well for the silver. There's a man, another one of these guys that uh, had been out racing and racing well, took some time away from the sport and has then come back. Uh, you can't get away from, though, the the fact that the defining moment in that series uh, for the year was what happened in the latter stages of Fuji. And before we get into um, the, 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 the big deal between the three drivers that were involved in those incidents, I have to say I'm crushingly disappointed with the response that we saw from the race stewards um, and on two grounds. One, it simply wasn't appropriate, in my view, to decide... Uh, something as swinging as that based on a single incident when there were multiple incidents involved. Mm. And two, you can't get away with the not saying it in the first language when the... I have to tell you, I've kept that piece of paper. So have I. It is the worst written decision I've ever seen from a racing steward. Uh, The worst written. It simply still doesn't make sense. And, you know, that, I think, is a crushing disappointment. It's something we've, we've come to expect better. And I think we would be better served here with perhaps more direct involvement in those kind of incidents from a current or recently retired driver. Uh, I think we've probably all had our say uh, at the time and since about those incidents, about who did what to whom. Um, I have not changed my opinion from when I called it live. What I saw, I still believe I saw, and the data and even the stewards 
uh, inquiry results uh, seemed to back up the fact that one car ran into the back of another. And at that point, I think that's end of conversation <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Uh, however, I'll, I'll go with you, Graham, on what you said um, about what happened. It was a weird weekend, that, at Fuji. It was the weekend that that uh, Labra lost their pole position with a part that had been on the car for the whole year and a part that was on the car that won Le Mans, let's not forget, and was scrutinised as legal all the way through. Um, it was the weekend of knee-jerk decisions when there didn't have to be knee-jerk decisions. There was a brand-new steward in the steward's room, whether that was a factor to it. But when... See, the dog below, the dog understands. He agrees. Um, and the... KCMG uh, entry, that one. Yeah, very good. <laughs> um, there, there were some procedural issues as well, which I'm not going to go into, which is a shame, Bruce, because it rather spoiled and slightly left a sour taste in the mouth for the rest of the season. Now, the truth is that had Nick Tandy not spun off on the first lap at Shanghai, things might have been a lot different before we went to uh, went to Bahrain. But ultimately... It popped the balloon. It popped the balloon, John. It oh, was just perfect. So, so good, such good nip and tuck through the course of the season. Fuji actually just put that moment, the moment, under a blanket. There was some absolutely stonkingly good racing at Fuji. I didn't know where to look at times. But after that, the whole thing, it was a bit like the balloon had been popped and it was just gradually disgorging itself and uh, blowing out. And it was such a shame because I was looking forward to that championship going down to the final lap of the final round. And I think it was immensely sad. And I concur with pretty much what you've been saying. And I think it's uh, it's it's very difficult. But I, I try being an optimist. Um by nature, I, I'm going to sort of try and not think about that incident too much and just focus on the fact that we really had some brilliant, brilliant racing. Um, but yes, some strange decisions that weekend. And it's a long way for a lot of people to travel to be faced with decisions like that being made. So I think it's unfortunate. And hopefully, as politicians would say, we can learn something and go forward. Uh, uh, there, there's, there's a lot of talk about uh, potential changes in how those types of decisions will be made and who will make them. Um, I hope that comes under some scrutiny. What I would say is that, just to put a full stop on this, guys, before we move on to your picks uh, for the year from uh, LMP2, um, is that a lot of people don't understand how these decisions are made and who makes them. There are three FIA stewards at every event. There's normally a local steward and a couple of FIA stewards. In the FIA WEC, there's a driver advisor um, who is not a steward and doesn't have to sign the paperwork or the decision. He is there should he be required to have an opinion. And um, We don't know because it's, it's not one of those things that comes out whether that was asked for given or what opinion was given. And we should also say that Eduardo Freitas, who's the race director, isn't one of the people who make those decisions. Um, that is uh, a different, a completely different decision-making um, procedure that Eduardo is doing whilst the, the, the race is uh, in progress. The stewards' decisions were made by three entirely different people. Uh, let's hope for better. Uh, the, the, the class deserved better. The... Race, the racers and the teams deserve better and certainly the fans and the sponsors deserve better but let's hope that that moves on to 
perhaps bring us something positive in 2016. Um, Bruce, you first then. Um, in a in a season that had a number of standout performances in LMP2s for individuals, um, pretty much all of the cars had three driver teams. Where does uh, where does the Bruce Jones mark go in terms of outstanding effort? I'm finding it really, really hard for them. <laughs> but, um, but, but, you know, I just wanted to men- mention the like of Paulus Chatin and Nelson Ponsutichi. I thought they were fantastic in the senior tech Alpine. Agreed. Um, Richard Bradley, I think, drove very well in parts. We did have that incident, obviously, at Fuji. I was really, really impressed with Matt Housen's progress. Um, Nick Tandy, we know what he can do. Sam Bird, we can know what we, he, he can do. And it comes down really to a choice between those two. And I think I'll give it to Sam Bird there because mm. I think he, he, you touched upon it, the two of you, his role in advancing the G-Drive racing cause has been phenomenal. And in the car, he's been absolutely mighty. So he gets my, my decision, but by the shortest of margins over Nick Tandy. Made the difference, made the difference. And that's, that's key to that. I'm pleased you mentioned Nelson Panciatici and Paul Lupchatin uh, there, Bruce, because easy to forget the guys because they weren't always right at the very sharp end. Um, I've been sharply critical, criti- critical of Nelson Panciatici in the past and indeed I commentated on him in a couple of other series this year one in, in which he hit everything except the safety car but we got the good Panciatici in LMP2 this year and Paul Loop Shannon's rise and rise Graham through what you know used to be Formula Le Mans, LMPC whatever into PC uh, LMP2 Two has been impressive and absolutely what the series, the ELMS and the, the ladder system is, is meant to achieve. What about you then? Who do you look at in LMP2? Uh, well, for me, I think I almost entirely agree with, with Bruce. There's one of the guy we haven't mentioned and it's another one that, uh, for me, is in a pretty long list of about a dozen that come equal second and that's uh, Ollie Webb. Yes, because uh, he had a great season, and I remember fondly that uh, to he made a mistake uh, from memory. I think that was at Fuji, but he did that to actually try to do the right thing, um, and you know played a very sporting game at a difficult moment there. But I thought he did very well in a car that uh, nobody expected to perform as well as it did with the Saab Moran Morgan. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it comes down to me to who really did the job that they were there to do. Uh, the top three for me doesn't include Nick Tandy, and the reason for that, it's the only class, I have to tell you that that's not true of for Nick this year, was because he did make two errors. He made the error at the very start of the race in Shanghai, putting the car in the gravel trap and lost a lap, and he made an error in qualifying at Fuji, which cost them time as well and cost them that uh, vital point. Um, so the three for me... Uh, in the season were actually uh, Matt Housen. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, Julian Canal and it was Sam Bird. And actually, by a distance this time, it's Sam Bird. Uh, and, and for all the reasons that both of you have actually said before, his pace was stunning. He did put, uh, you know, uh, take the shine off the efforts of just about everybody else in the class. When he was, uh, you know, on, on a tear, it was like in LMP2, which is a, you know, a massive, uh, you know, thumbs up for for Sam's efforts. Big but compliment. more than that, it was the contribution he made to the overall attack. And there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever that that has turned some heads. And there's no doubt whatsoever that that's going to make a difference to where we see Sam next season 
watch this space. Yeah, I'd be very surprised if he hasn't got a role with a major LMP1 manufacturer uh, next year. If Whether it's a race role or not, I'm not sure. Uh, and more, mm. I think, is the answer. The answer is I think we're going to see a lot more of Sam Bird on and off the circuit next year. Um, let's move on to LMP1 and the private teams. Just the three this year, three cars, Rebellion for Two and Team by Collis. Uh, with their CLM car, uh, all running the AER engine, uh, done in slightly different ways. This is, in some ways, the forgotten class. It's a difficult class to put your finger on and say um, anything other than, I really like to see these guys out there, but I'd like to see this class given a little bit more, um, a little bit more of everything. More cars, more time on telly, um, more credence. The fact is, Bruce, that Rebellion, Bart Hayden and and his guys can only race what is out there. Um, They have done something that few, other than the manufacturers in the WEC, a world championship, have done, is that they have designed and built and financed their own racing car, as have team by Collis, and they've gone out there to race it. And that, to me, is the very essence of what we see in prototype racing. Um, they aren't the sort of people who will want to go to a spec, albeit three or four chassis spec, LMP2 category. We have to find a way of keeping these guys involved in the championship and keeping the kind of engineering expertise that these guys bring in and the, the racing passion. That's got to be worth something in this championship, hasn't it? It has. I mean, the 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 progression, or you might call it regression, of LMP2 to where it's heading with the with the four chassis manufacturers and so on. If that was left open, and I was those teams, I'd almost rather go down and build my car and dominate that series for the simple Correct. reason that being a privateer in LMP, you're almost not you're almost invisible. Yes, we can see the cars on the track, but we tend to talk about LMP1, LMP2, GTE Pro, GTE Am. It's a class that gets forgotten, and after the first handful of laps. They're, they're losing, you know, seconds per lap from the LMP runners. They're ahead of the LMP2 runners on, on, a, on a good day when the, the top drivers are on board, but they become invisible in the race. The TV director will naturally go for the championship and class leading battles, and they get forgotten. There was all sorts of mechanical failures through the course of the season. So if you had a race where one of the lead rebellions was actually having good crack and staying, you know, relatively close to the Toyotas, then there'd be a problem and they'd drop away again. It was so difficult to keep up with where they were, so difficult also to admire what they were achieving with the cars they were putting on the track. That got lost in the mix. And um, you'd come away and you'd talk about, oh, well, you know, fantastic battle for LMP2 honours, which was some distance behind them, mm. but you'd ignore them. Not intentionally, it was just something that happened. The man is wrong. that They're out there racing in a world championship, racing top-level cars, and you're not talking about them. There's something amiss and I, I don't know what the solution is, but actually, if I was running one of those teams, I think I'd rather race in LMP2. I think that's the be-all and end-all It's difficult for me. It's difficult, Graham, isn't it? And, and Bruce has mentioned something there that I hadn't really thought about. We should be giving them plaudits, more plaudits, or everybody should, for getting those cars out there. And a performance that three, four, five years ago, we would have been jumping up and down and saying how great it is for a, an independent team to be doing that sort of thing with that car at that level of performance in a world championship. Now, we know that CLM 
are coming back next year. In fact, building uh, another couple of chassis and making some more changes, continually developing uh, the Bicolis team, continually developing that CLM car with new pickups at the front. Um, Rebellion, well... There's nothing wrong with the car design. It's being used for other things. Uh, the Orica uh, Concern have uh, sort of subcontracted that or sub-licensed that into uh, other forms of racing. But you've got to wonder where the future lies for these guys. And I, I kind of felt for them because th- there was almost the fact that they felt a bit odd standing on a podium at the end of six hours through the through the season. I think you're absolutely right. It's a frustrating time to be an LMP1 privateer. And I think that there is an irony. We've talked here about uh, the, the kind of new era, if you like, or this middle era, if you like, in LMP2. Almost, there's so much of a gap now between the extraordinary, almost vertical curve of development in the P1 uh, factory stakes between that and the privateer what we've got is kind of new era p2 in the old sense that they're having to push so hard to get anywhere close and still failing that yes. it's bringing with it poor reliability that you know there's not a lot more that can be done with those packages to make them very much quicker there are a couple of plans afoot yes there'll be engine development yes there's a little bit more weight that could be saved yes you could do this yes you could do that Yes, I think we might start to see the potential at least for someone putting their uh, you know, hat in the ring and changing tyre supply, for instance. Uh, so those things can be done, but there is a reality here, which is they're going to be woefully off the pace with even a slow, a slower rather, factory car because this, the steps that are being taken forward are simply unprecedented. And my view is quite simple. You know, there's been a sensible meeting with the uh, the rule makers, uh, with both the current and uh, aspirant uh, P1 privateer ent- uh, entries, the important thing now is what response are we going to get from the rule makers? Because I think it's quite simple. Whether or not you want to be there, um, the reality is, at the moment, there is no way you can compete. So there's two things you've got, one of two things you've got to do, or maybe both. You've either got to create something that's worth winning with the package or remarkably close to the package that we've currently got, or you've got to do something about uh, levelling the playing field more. And I can't really see very much that could be done on that front. What you can do is to make it cheaper for people to run at that level so that you're not having to push quite so hard to finish effectively, to lose a lap or even two laps in a single stint. Yeah. I, I wonder looking forward, there's no... Uh, the, the interesting thing, having spoken to both by Collis and Rebellion Bruce... Um, and Bart Hayden at length when we were uh, when I had an extra day doing the highlights, waiting in the paddock to do the highlights on uh, after Shanghai. There isn't an easy answer to this, as as we've alluded to. There's not one thing. It's not like saying, oh, you know, open the restrictors up, give us a bigger fuel tank, forget fuel flow. Um, all of those things could be done, but I'm I'm not sure it would make a huge amount of difference. It's interesting that there are still other people we are we understand who want to be in that category. Also interesting to me, if we link this with the uh, it, the P2, the change in P2 drivers in particular, there is a reasonable body of opinion within the paddock that full pro drivers teams in P2 could be sustainable with the amount of drivers coming over from LM uh, from GP2, GP3 who are funded. 
uh, and would spend money in, as you said, as a career step into LMP2. There might be some way of sort of melding that together and giving us either an LMP2, LMP one and a half, or a pro version of that, or getting that together. But something has to be done. Otherwise, I don't see us. I don't see Rebellion going back into P2. I don't see Team by College going back into P2. I see us losing them from the paddock. Yeah, no, I very much worry about that. I think if you you know drift back through time, back to the Group C days. Of course, Privateer could buy a Porsche 956. They'd be off the pace, but not a million miles off the pace. Good point. Got a good lineup, but they didn't want to race in C2. C2 was a country mile away in terms of performance. Um, but now there's this sort of lost middle ground. And yes, I, I would understand if Rebellion felt it was a dreadful step back. But in terms of publicity, it's a question of why you're going racing in many ways. Yes, in the old days in Group C. If you said, I'm racing a Porsche 956, we don't expect to beat the factory version, but we're up there and we've got a, you know, a world-class car. But, Graham, your phrase about a near vertical curve for the, the pace of progress in LMP1 between the manu- works manufacturers is so extraordinary. I don't think there's really been a period in no. sports car racing like it. I mean, it is absolutely phenomenal. Poor old Toyota. Um, yeah, well, we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, this dr- year. Drivers drivers in, in privateers... Uh, some very good drivers in there. Uh, let's start with you, Bruce, if we would, as you were talking last. My choice for driver of the year 2015 in the privateer section of LMP1. Some great performances by Alexander Imperatori, driver who's really had to work to make his career happen. Became a driver coach in China long, long ago. Raced in Japan with the Plom. He, to me, was the pick of the drivers from Rebellion Racing. Hampered a few times by mechanical failures. Good performances, too, from Nick Heidfeld, as you'd expect in the sister car. But really, uh, Pierre Kaffer is the driver who was the gold standard in this very limited class in 2015. Great performances from his teammate, Simon Trummer, coming in uh, from single-seaters. But Pierre, in the CLM, by college entry, was the pick of the pack for me. Always, uh, always did everything with a smile on his face as well. Graham Goodwin, do you step away from? As you see, I, w- I always want to call him Young Mister Kaffer, but he's he's not. <laughs> he's not. He is. Uh, he is. Not. As we we had this conversation with him actually at Quarter, had breakfast with him in Quarter in Marion's, and saying, you know, he is one of the elder statesmen uh, and speaks a lot of sense always. He's driving, did a lot of good talking this year. He's helped develop that car. In fairness, the CLM by. Is he your pick, or do you go elsewhere? He's not my pick, John. Uh, it's not that's not no, no slur at all on on Pierre, or indeed every single one of the guys that uh, Bruce already mentioned. But my pick of the year is Matthias Besch, uh, because I think Matthias is the other driver, together with uh, Pippo Durrani, that should have had an opportunity to try out for a factory team. I think if you look at his consistency in his lap times, I think he's been the pick of the bunch. But uh, what I want to see more than anything else is drivers of the quality of all the men that uh, that Bruce mentioned, plus uh, plus uh, our friend Mr. Besh, competing for something that they would agree is worth winning in 2016. Yeah, Besh and Prost uh, take the championship and, uh, of course, it was Rebellion who wrapped up the team's championship uh, with a round or two to spare. You're listening to a Midweek Motorsport Special on RadioLamont.com. It's John Hindoff with Bruce Jones and Graham Goodwin as we look back at the FIA World Endurance Championship for 2000. 
and 15. We have mentioned the almost stratospheric and vertical uh, pace uh, climb rate of technological innovation and more importantly of lap time improvements for 2015. A word about that from both gentlemen. Bruce, you've been around and watched a lot of motor racing in a lot of different categories down through the years. For me, the kind of improvements that we saw, I I cannot think that in a year where there were no major changes to uh, regulations or sporting regulations, I can't think six and a half seconds on average uh, around the circuits, the six-hour circuits, never mind Le Mans, um, has been achieved in any single category since the very dawn, surely, of motor racing. No, 100%. When you see new technology, you can, if you're of a technical mind, detect its difference to what went before and... Out on the track, you might actually notice the lap time has improved by a couple of seconds. But this, you could actually see it with <laughs> eyes around the corners and down the straights of the circuits. It was astonishing. And it, it wasn't something that burst at the start of the season. They'd made a big step up at the start of the season, but it kept on improving. It was extraordinary. And the way that uh, Porsche laid down the gauntlet, Audi kept fighting back, and poor Toyota was looking really poor by comparison, but they were still making strides forward. That's the thing that gets lost in this whole mix. It was extraordinary. There may never be another season like it, but to have no rule changes and have this absolute, as we've just mentioned many times, a near vertical improvement is extraordinary. And I think in many years, people are going to look back. At, I've said it many times through the course of the year. I think this is the golden age of sports car racing. Even if you just take the top few manufacturers, I think it's been truly extraordinary. It's been brilliant racing. But the fact the cars looked so incredibly quick on the track, yeah. and that's proved by the, the stopwatches, was phenomenal. It, it, we were we were talking about it, Graham all year long, long as uh, as Bruce and Johnny were for for the Radio Le Mans coverage. It really dawned on us, I think, when we were uh, at there was Fuji, wasn't it? And we were looking at the World Championship teams' performance. Toyota won the World Championship last year. Cars number one and two, two and a half seconds faster in qualifying than they had gone before around there. Now. In any other season, in any other championship, you would have thought, well, if they've improved two and a half seconds on last year, where they set the lap record, by the way. At it, the was Shanghai, uh, was it, it was Shanghai, John. It was Shanghai. Sorry, it was Shanghai. It, it was yeah. Shanghai. Um, if they'd improved that much, where they'd already set the lap record the year before, they would boss the championship and we would be talking like a, a, a kind of... A, a kind of domination as Mercedes-Benz had in Formula One, and yet they were fifth and sixth. Yep, absolutely right. Two podium finishes in the year to to look at, one in the first race and one in the last race, from memory. And uh, well, they, they had, in performance terms, an extraordinary year. And, and what Bruce has just said is 100% correct. I'm just trying to rack my brains of any major form of motorsport where we've seen anything remotely close to this. Not for the five and a half seconds, but for the two and a half seconds. I mean, even that was extraordinary, but they were made to look ordinary. And it's, uh, it's been a, an amazing year. Uh, because better still than that, better still than that vertical development curve for two, uh, well, in fact, three of the, the four intended factories uh, that we had for this season, better still than that, two of them were close. 
And mm. we didn't get the World Championship decided until, well, frankly, the last 15 minutes of the, of the, of the final race. And that because we saw something that we didn't see for much of the year. Because what we also saw, despite that, that extraordinary leap forward in pace and performances, remarkable reliability. Well, um, Paul Truswell was uh, um, very excited and, and then a bit sort of downhearted, Bruce, in the, the last race of the season. I listened to uh, your and Johnny's call of that and, and Paul's analysis to be able to say that that was uh, the first six-hour race where everybody started and everybody finished. And it, he said a little bit of him had died at, at that point. Now, it, it only just was that. I, I know what he means about that, but that just again underlines, does it not, the change in character in emphasis as somebody always used to say to me in emphasis um, of what endurance racing is now in 2015 and beyond it is a series of sprints between which you fill the car up it's effectively a 45 50 minute race come in rinse and repeat yeah but i think one of the absolute beauties of this year (laughs) having just extolled the phenomenal pace of development put that to one side Fabulous in its own right. The other factor was we had brilliant, brilliant racing. And it wasn't like in one race, one manufacturer had a car that was more suited to a track. In their driver pairings, the the racing was just absolutely brilliant. It was neck and neck. And then to combine those two elements, the huge performance development and brilliant side-by-side, neck-by-neck, lap lap chart, up and downing sort of racing it's been a brilliant brilliant year and and when you come to us in a few minutes and ask who was our pick of the drivers that is going to be such a hard one to go to but i think one of the hardest jobs this year would have been the person cutting down this championship to find the highlights packet where do you start leaving stuff out of that it was just we mentioned earlier fuji brilliant racing shanghai brilliant racing it's been a truly phenomenal season and um, I, I can't speak highly enough of the championship of 2015. I, I think, and I started the introduction to this review of the 2015 WEC uh, World Endurance Championship, the FIA World Endurance Championship season, by saying that two of the races, uh, Silverstone and Spa, were nominated for the race of the year. Now, I respect Man of the Year. Uh, sure, Silverstone got the nod. Both of those beat into third place the Phillip Island Moto GP race, which is still on my DVR, still on my hard drive, because that is still the best motorcycle race I've ever seen and one of the best motor races I've ever seen. And for our listenership to put both of those races above that, now I accept that they are biased towards endurance racing a little bit, so okay, I. I understand that. But that just underlines for me, Graham, the, the remarkable season that we've had. And Bruce's point is, is apposite in that uh, we often talk about there's a great race going on, but they're two miles apart at the moment because they're trading thousands of seconds in lap time. What we've seen here, well, they weren't trading thousands of seconds two miles apart. They were trading paint all the way around the circuit. Have we got to accept now that that is the new brand of endurance racing? Oh, God, I hope so. Oh, I really do. I mean, John, I mean, look, we, we, were, we were at the, uh, the prologue test and that was pretty good. We were seeing steps forward and it's pretty clear that some of the factory guys were keeping some of their powder dry. But Silverstone was 
in the best way possible, shocking. Shocking because I, I you know, had we not been being as disciplined as we could be in those circumstances, and I'm sure the same was the case for the Radio Le Mans guys as well, I've no doubt we'd have been standing in the press room screaming at the TV. It was magnificent stuff. Marcel Fesler, uh, you know, versus, was it Romain Dumas at that stage? Uh, it was fantastic, fantastic stuff. And at that stage, because the two cars, the Porsche and the Audi, were were strong in so completely different ways and mm. it was you know having to attack and defend attack and defend corner and straight corner and straight after corner and straight corner and straight then to move on from there to spa where audi took that extraordinary leap forward in aero terms against the porsche and all of a sudden what had been a massive straight line disadvantage disappeared mm-hmm. in the space of what three weeks yes i mean absolutely the most astonishing thing i've ever seen in motorsport it was mesmerizing stuff and you know i think you know you've watched a very good endurance race when you walk out of a press room or you know of a commentary booth and it doesn't feel like six hours it felt like that race went on for about 90 minutes yeah i'd agree with all of that we've talked a little bit about toyota the defending champions and they came in a creditable but distant third position they were a, a full hundred points away from from audi and Porsche won the Manufacturers' Championship courtesy of fantastic results from Le Mans uh, onwards, quite frankly. But the racing was far closer, perhaps, than 344 to 264 points in the Manufacturers' Championship would suggest. And indeed, when we get to the Drivers' Championship, it was that much closer. And Graham rightly pointed out it could have changed uh, at any time after Mark Webber had got into that car. That car was a very, very sick number 17 and nobody, nobody, not Mark Webber, certainly not Kyle Wilson-Clark, as he's said to us on Midweek Motorsport, not even Alex Ittinger, who was on our LMP1 special, which is worth a listen to. By the way, if you haven't, it's on the archive. Um, they didn't know if that car was going to do the last hour and 20 minutes of Bahrain, and that would have been uh, that would have been the championship dis- disappearing for the, for the drivers. What I liked about, you know, what Audi did during the year, uh, Bruce, the the pace of development from last year was big. Audi had moved up and optimised, as Chris Renke said, had optimised every part of the car to try and find uh, some more pace from last year. They were disappointed with last year's car. They went to this year's car early. It seemed to pay dividends early on. Porsche didn't have reliability in the first part of the year. Um, Weber's car out with a gearbox issue at uh, at Silverstone uh, while Mark was was in the car, and they went to Le Mans with a fairly healthy lead in the championship, but Porsche had been planning for Le Mans, and after Le Mans, their second part of the season, aero kit was really very impressive indeed. But I like the fact, Bruce, that the Audi and Porsche were trading lap times and paint, but also the strategy calls. Nobody had it easy. Everybody was trying to find some tiny little advantage which is not always been the case we see people say well we can do 33 laps they can do 32 then we'll just let it play out it wasn't like that this year everybody was looking poking their head up over the parapet trying to find that tenth half a tenth or a second yeah and then if it wasn't going very well for uh, the Audi crew you'd just get the little message being popped into Andre Lotterer's ear and you'd see his eyebrows go up and consider it go sort of okay I'll go and do that for you and 
I loved it. I think some of the sort of cameo performances were just those little snaps in the pit lane where the messages were going across. We're changing our tactic as Audi. We can't beat Porsche unless you do the impossible for the next two hours. Out you go, off go and do it. I think it was uh, just such an enthralling season. I'd like to watch it all over again so I can pick up all the stuff that I missed. Because yes. so many little things. But the thing that gets me, you just mentioned it a while ago, that lap at Sakir, half an hour to go, when suddenly Mark Webber dropped 30 seconds on one lap. It looks like he might manage to do one more, yet it all came back again, and just the drama to the finish. But, um, yeah, it's the tactics and what they had to do, but then we did see those big pivotal moments like Porsche turning up at the Nürburgring with, a, with different bodywork and just making it work for them. So every time Audi caught up with their two immensely strong trues, Porsche just raised the, raised the game that little bit more for Audi, I mean, they deserve all sorts of awards. Any award you can give them for their spirit in not letting Porsche get away. Uh, the Nürburgring actually was a great addition to the championship, Graham. Big crowd, great race. And we often talk, don't we, about... It's, it's like in football, in soccer. Uh, it, it's often the guys who score the goals, the attackers, who get all the plaudits. Of course it is. They're tend to win matches from the front. In motor racing, it tends to be the people who pull off that stunning overtaking manoeuvre, the guys who scythe their way through the field in a great comeback drive. At the Nürburgring, I think we saw some of the best and fairest defensive driving I have ever seen from Ben Trelluere, who, by the way, had a fabulous comeback drive at Silverstone when the car had no power starting the race. But at the other end of the field, he was extraordinary. And that battle that he had for lap after lap with not one but two Porsches at one stage was just unbelievable. He should not have been able to hold on to that position. And he it was, did. It, it was stunning, wasn't it? And that, I think I'm right, John, was the battle where... He needed the cavalry, didn't he? He did. Uh, and he did. I mean, he, it, it, unfortunately, you've now put me in a position where I'm expecting you to, uh, to uh, expecting you to ask me my answer to who's the driver of the year, and I'm doing exactly what both of you are doing, which is that sense of rapid fire deja vu, and it really, really is going to be difficult to separate any of the factory drivers Correct. from Porsche and from Audi because all of them have had, I think, pretty banner years. Uh, <laughs> It's it's difficult to pull out six hours of highlights, let alone fifty two minutes, as you know the WEC TV guys have, have actually had to try to manage with your help, John. And you know, it, <laughs> the depressing thing is, how can this possibly be better next year? Well. We've, we've got, hopefully, Nissan back in the mix, and that was the big disappointment this year, of course. Yep. Nissan not being able to get their programme together. It would seem rather badly let down by one of their suppliers for the uh, for the KERS system, for the energy recovery system. Um, can't take away from Toyota, Audi and Porsche, though, in terms of their commitment to the, the cause. And you've got to say... Bruce Porsche did a very good job. They were very canny in that start of the season. We've said this on Midweek Motorsport before. In the start of the season, they were planning towards Le Mans and the aero kit was Le Mans based and they were testing that to effectively to destruction and getting as much data as they could. After Le Mans, clearly then, they shifted focus and shifted gears in the, the aero department. 2014 was Porsche's first year back. It was, you know, the the the, 
And the big tagline was actually quite a quiet tagline. Mission 2014, our return. If you don't mind, we'll just pop back. Um, but don't expect too much of us. That was the kind of subtext that I was getting from that. 2015 was Mission Future Sports Car. Now, that's a very big statement to make. And yet, they're pretty much delivered on every level from that right the way through the season. 100%. But I tell you one thing, if they want an improvement for next year... I'd really like Porsche and Audi not both to race largely white cars. Yes, agreed. They could come back and and your enjoyment when you've got four or five prototypes coming down to the first corner and it's actually quite hard on a on a dark rainy day to pick out which is which. But the racing is brilliant, but you have to slightly hold back and make sure you identify the right ones. So if we can have Porsche stay in the red or the black that they ran at the more and Audi can stay in largely white or vice versa, just as long <laughs> as they look different. But uh, yes, I think they did a really, really strong you could say very germanic performance through 2015 their second season back and i think they've got great driver lineups there too but that's a given at this level of motor racing but uh, yeah i think a really really fantastic season from porsche and in many ways you know you look back over sports car racing since since the late 60s you need porsche in there and it's fabulous to have them back and great they're winning and it's been a huge story uh, for the world endurance championship and just little moments little uh, one moment that will stick with me is the Formula One press conference at the Austrian Grand Prix where Nico Hülkenberg turns up with a Le Mans winning trophy, sticks it down on the table. What do you guys do over the weekend? Fantastic. <laughs> There's my trump card. Off you go. I, I have to say, I was very impressed with uh, Sebastian Vettel's uh, attitude towards all of that when uh, he was questioned about it. He's not always been one of my favourite characters from, from Formula One, but one has to... Um, remember, he's growing into one of the elder statesmen of that side of the sport as well. And when he was asked about Nico Hulkenberg, he said, that's brilliant, that's the toughest race in the world to win, and the fact that he's gone and done that makes us all look better drivers, which I thought was a great comment from Vettel. Really, I did. Um, great quote, great quote. Un- unbelievably, of course, as we said, the Drivers' Championship came down to you know the, the last stint of the last race of the year underneath the lights uh, in in Bahrain which fortunately didn't go out for a second time as they did earlier on uh, in in the week um, Mark Webber of course uh, as Nico Hulkenberg did, did at Le Mans outside of our part of the sport gets the headlines um, I understand why that is it does slightly irk me um, that, that that's the case however you can't blame Mark or Nico for that and I thought they were both um, very uh, just and correct with how they deflected those kinds of, of questions through the season, gentlemen. Um, Mark described Graham Timo Bernhard as the glue that put the team of him, Hartley and Bernhard together. And in terms of winning the championship for those three, the Drivers' Championship, which Porsche wouldn't look at even before they'd got the uh, the Manufacturers' Championship, Timo, for me, that's a that is a great win for Timor, and Timor is again a world champion. Uh, it's an astonishing win for the for the trio of them, and it was great to hear Mark pour those endorsements not just on his step forward this year. And let's not overlook that massive. because he didn't look massively comfortable in his first year in LMP1, um, and to actually pour the plaudits on to both Brendan Hartley as he emerges into the superstar, he undoubtedly already is and is going to continue to be, but also uh, Timo Bernhardt and the contribution that he's made, I thought was was yet another big tick in the box for 
Mark Webber. We talked uh, you know, earlier in the show, John, about the contribution that Patrick Dempsey's made to the World Championship and its mm. profile. Let's not forget that aspect of, of Mark Webber's uh, character. You're right, there is something slightly irksome that, you know, a couple of national newspapers in the UK, for instance, chose to write that Mark Webber had won the World Championship and one didn't even mention his teammates. Uh, <laughs> that's ridiculous. But it's not Mark's fault. No. That's not Mark's fault. Bruce? I'm just going to say the fact they were covering it is a big step forward. It's Even true. the smallest of stories, the way that uh, anything outside Formula One has dropped off their radar. Yeah, I, and, and, and the BBC even sent someone, Jonathan Ledyard, uh, former Formula One commentator and still correspondent for the BBC. Uh, he was sent uh, with a producer to Bahrain to do some video for the BBC Sport website. So, you know, we can criticise, but as Graham says, it has pushed the sport forward. We're running out of time, so let's go to uh, Bruce first of all for his uh, driver... Uh, in the FIA World Endurance Championship LMP1 Hybrid. It's a tough one, Bruce, and I'm throwing this one to you first. No, I'm very happy to go with it because in my mind, quite early in the season, I thought one driver was standing out to me in terms of having that absolute desire to set, just do lap after lap really fast, and he delivered. He was super quick. You might think I might be about to say Andre Lotterer. Ron Camp It's a Porsche driver, not from the winning crew, though. Neil Yarny gets my vote. Oh. I think he is such a superstar. And some of the stints he did, double stint, treble stint, no problem. And his lap times, fantastic. Such a fighter. He's my red meat driver of 2015. And very good that, you know, it, it was easy to forget that 18 crew. They had a lot of bad luck. It was the other car that won Le Mans. And, of course, Tandy and Earl Bamber, along with Hulkenberg, got the plaudits there. The 17 won the championship. Yeah, very good. Very good. Like that. Graham, what about you? Nearly the same as Bruce, but it's not going to be quite there. I'm going to choose a driver apiece in the two cars that didn't finish at the top. Uh, Lucas Degrassi, I thought, was excellent this year yes. in the, the number eight Audi. Neil Johnny was certainly the standout uh, in the the not winning Porsche, all three in both of the other two cars, the leading Porsche and the leading Audi, I thought were worthy of it. All of them had moments that made them stand at the top and all of them had moments didn't quite get there. For me, strip it all back, and it's not going to be Andrew Lotterer for me either, it's a toss-up for me between young Brendan Hartley and Timo Bernhard. Why? Because Timo, I think, won that world championship for them. Mm. I think that glue that dragging it all together as a, as a package, it was about winning races, and let's not forget they won four of them. Yes. Um, and it's about finishing as high up as you possibly can. Uh, Brendan Hartley will have another year at this, and another year after that, and another year after that. Timo Bernhard, for me, my driver of the season. Um, my person of the season was the Porsche engineer who when the fabulously complicated uh, throttle actuation system broke down in that first stint for Timo uh, Bernard got out some tie wraps and fixed it in proper proper old fashioned endurance style for that for driver um, I'm, I'm not going to go for, for one of the, the winning crew guys um, you could make a case for any one of the, the works drivers as, as you rightly say Often the forgotten man of Audi is Ben Trellewey. And Ben's averages, when you look at them, are simply extraordinary. And he is the driver for me. Like Yarny, funny enough, that Bruce mentioned. Get in and do a double stint. Uh, push, what is it Lena says? Push without risk. 
Ben's the guy who does that, uh, and I don't think he gets quite enough uh, credit for that because he's perhaps not the most forthcoming um, in interviews. He's not always the guy who's pushed, pushing himself to the front and picking the microphone up, but Ben Trellier for me. Uh, thank you very much, gentlemen. Uh, Porsche will defend their world championships. They will have cars number one and two next year. Does that mean Audi will go back to their favoured seven and eight? We don't know. We'll find out when we're at the... Prologue, I suppose, down at Recard, which we'll be covering here on RadioLamont.com. What is for sure is that Audi and Toyota with new cars will be pushing and pushing very hard. Porsche know that just moving up in the energy stakes to higher mega joule capacities for those two will give them more performance for next year which means we get to see even better racing. Is that possible? I'm not sure. But it'll all be here live on RadioLeMond.com and on WEC TV as well. My thanks to Graham Goodwin and Bruce Jones for this show and their efforts throughout the season, along with uh, Johnny Palmer, Alex Brundle and all the rest of the radio crew and, of course, the huge crew that stand behind Graham and I to provide the pictures and the technical facilities that allow us to do what we've been doing. A brilliant year for the FIA World Endurance Championship, a world championship that is absolutely worthy of the name and is full of great competition. Hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. See you next year. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.